This morning's Kriya the Torah, everybody, if you would turn in your Chumashim to page 529. 529, the last verse of chapter 31. What's amazing, um, I mean, it's never, it's never lost, on, I, I think, on me and I'm sure many of you, is that when you read about the tabernacle, which is, of course, this, this beautiful, ornate, intricate, mobile sanctuary that was created in the desert, it seems narratively ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. Out of nothing at all. It was like, where did it come from? Where did it come from? It's very clear in the text that we don't have any forewarning. Nobody says, and by the way, as soon as they leave Mount Sinai, this is about to happen. Why would we think that? They're like, where does that come from? Tabernacle. Not to say that we kind of knew what was going to happen at Mount Sinai either, but we kind of felt narratively that as soon as we left Egypt, that Moses had said earlier to Pharaoh, when they leave Egypt, they will worship me, Baharaz, they'll worship me on a certain mountain. We knew that that mountain was connected somehow to the theophany or the revelation of God at the burning bush. Something was going to happen, but that too kind of came out of nowhere, but okay. Because really, what is... the Mount Sinai have to do with leaving Egypt. We leave Egypt and they should go right into the promised land. We didn't have at any point in the Torah any kind of forewarning or foreshadowing of a Torah being given. We kind of assume that too. So, okay, they were enslaved and now they're going to be free. We'll bring them to the promised land. That's it. But these two moments happen. Mount Sinai. And then when Mount Sinai is done, we have the tabernacle, which consumes the latter third of the book of Exodus. Five portions, really four. But the last five portions begin with the tabernacle. The first portion of those five is Truma. We read that two weeks ago. Last week we read Titzavah. Those both are focused on the tabernacle. <clears throat> From a historical perspective, critically, we can imagine how important it was whoever was writing the Torah to kind of throw anachronistically back in time the existence of a temple back into the desert in some way. We can imagine that. It has elegance, good theory, great. But the first two portions are interrupted and separated from the last two portions of the tabernacle. Get that? A and B are tabernacle. Last Two weeks ago, last week. Next week will be the final two with tabernacle. And in the middle of those five, every year, what's known as a chiastic structure, the C piece, the piece in the middle of all the five, is this Parsha. This incredible Parsha. Kitisa. A census is being taken. Half shekels will be collected. But of course, that's just the, the prelude to the main moment in the Parsha, which is it, what? The Egel Azahav, the golden calf. The golden calf story. The golden calf story with all of its perplexity, with all of its, its fantastic, its profound, it's shocking. It's, it's a trauma at the heart of the tabernacle. It's as if we're back in the Garden of Eden because, of course, the creation of the tabernacle is the creation of the world. 
the language used in the Bible to describe the building of the tabernacle is the very same language, very similar language, precise language, with God's creation of the world. So we have God creates the world in Genesis 1, and we create the tabernacle in Exodus. In other words, freedom from slavery then demands of us to create a world. Great. But in the heart of the tabernacle, like in the heart of the creation story, there is a trauma. There's a fall. There's a shattering. There's a breaking. There's something goes wrong. Verse 18. And it was given to Moses when he was, when God, chalot. Now you hear in that word chalot, you might hear chala, right? Wrong letter. That's a chet. This is a chaf. Kechaloto is used once before in the Torah in exactly this way. And it's, where does anybody know where it is? In the creation story. Right? The word chala with the, with a chaf means to complete. What did you say? Vayichulu. Right? We say in Kiddush on Friday night, when we, when we give testimony that God created the world in, se- in six days and rested on the seventh, we say, Vayechulu hashamayim ve'aretz. And the heavens and the earth were Vayechulud. What does Vayechulud mean? They were completed. Vayechulu. The word kala, which means what? Lechadodi likrat ka, bride, is also connected etymologically with that word. The end of all of my searching, right? In your eyes, in your eyes, I see the doorway, the thousand churches, your eyes. The end of all my fruitless searching, Vayechulu. It was the done, I'm done looking. You're the one, you're the one I was looking for. The rabbis pick up on the crazy connection between the word Kila vayechulu kichaloto, and say that here at this moment, in verse 18, as we just completed receiving Torah, now we're about to go into the moment of golden calf, this doorway, that this reminds us that the relationship between God and God's people is like that between two lovers. The word kala, just as a kala is adorned with 24 jewelry pieces, says Rashi, the great medieval exegete. So too, when we learn Torah, there are 24 books in the Torah. As if we adorn ourselves as God's bride with these 24 books of Torah. The image, as striking as it might be for you, or maybe not, we have it on Friday night, of a relation between God or divine lover and divine people as one of lovers, of a marriage made in heaven. If the relationship between God and God's people is that of a marriage, then we have to talk about marriage. This past weekend, I was in Parkland, um, down in Florida, for a Shabbaton that I had already scheduled a, a year in advance. And the plan was to talk about how I view the Jewish wedding ceremony, the wedding ceremony as a template for living, loving, and praying like we mean it. Living, loving, and praying like we mean it. And so I began this way. 
And this is, for those of you who are getting married or who want to get remarried after you hear this, I'm open for business. Listen to this. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are seven moments in a wedding ceremony. Each one of them is a koach, a power that discloses something. Each one of the moments of a Jewish wedding ceremony, each one of the ritualized moments is a power that if we work it, it will work for us in a healthy relationship. The first one is the power of seeking or searching, known as the bedekin. When you lift the veil or you put it down, you are promising that you will lift up the mystery of the other. That even though you have found one another, you won't stop looking for each other. You won't stop looking. That relationships die on the altar of familiarity, of assumptions. I read a quote from Seth Godin last week, where there is, ang where there is curiosity, anger and curiosity can't be in the same place. Curiosity and anger can't live in the same place. When there is curiosity, anger is dispelled, and the opposite is true too. When we stop looking for each other, as if the wedding is the end point and not the beginning, I found you, I lift the veil, I put it down, I lift it again, and I know that there are a thousand veils. That's the first moment. The second moment is we enter into the chuppah together, <clears throat> and we lift up a cup of the first of two cups of blessing, and we make a blessing known as <clears throat> erusin. I separate you from all other partners that I could have chosen. I say, I chose you. The power of choosing in a relationship is that I remind myself and we are reminded daily that we are free. And that relationship is itself a portal to freedom. I can leave when I want and I stay. We are not the chosen people. We are the choosing people. The power of choosing highlights my power to be free, a free agent. The third moment in the wedding ceremony is a moment when traditionally someone would circle, a bride would be circled by the groom, but in, my, in our ceremonies here, everybody circles, it's all circles all the time. The power of circling is the power of mirroring. Or really, it's the power of mirroring to disclose the need for shadow work. When I circle you, I go behind you, places you can't see yourself. And I promise that in a good relationship, I will bring to you things that you won't see, and you have to agree to that. I agree that one of the roles in a good relationship will be to mirror each other and show each other what we can't see. The fourth moment in the Jewish wedding ceremony is, is the ring, where I give a ring to someone and we exchange rings, which of course is nothing more than a circle on a line. A circle on a line. And in that moment, I say words. The fourth power is the power of promises. That if I promise something to you, I can trust you. You're going to keep your word. You can trust me that I'll keep my word. Relationships that don't have that fundamental trust are broken from the get-go. It's the power of language. When I mean it, I say it, I mean it. I won't say it unless I mean it. The fifth moment in the wedding ceremony is when we write it down. Sometimes we don't write things down. The ketubah, the marriage document, says that even if you and I exchange an oral agreement, it's much more powerful when I put it in writing. I write something down, I put pen to ink, it creates memory, it creates a story. I can go back and look at it. The sixth moment is when I say seven blessings over the second cup of wine, as if to say this marriage will rise and fall on my ability to name blessings. The power of blessing is that I will focus on what's positive and not what's, on neg what's negative. I will lift up what's good. I will make it my point that not just to complain about the things you did wrong, 
but say the good things you did right. So important with kids, with ourselves, with everyone to say, you know, we only notice things when they're broken sometimes and not when they're smooth. And the seventh and final moment, of course, is what I want to talk about now for just three minutes. How crazy it is that we leave the womb of the chuppah, because the chuppah is really a womb. We leave a container which represents the power of love that it is so strong it doesn't need walls. That if our container is so strong, we love each other so deeply, we don't need to erect walls because where love is, walls come down. They don't go up. It's the beauty of the chuppah. It doesn't have any walls. I love it when people say it's really a, a description of the home that you're going to build together. I always think, that's going to be a really small space. <clears throat> it, it is that too, but it's, it's much bigger than that. We leave the womb the way every child leaves the body of the mother with something breaking. We take a glass and we smash it. We smash a glass. And there are many interpretations for this, and I don't have the corn, I haven't cornered the market on this one, but I've thought about a lot of the traditional ones, and they just don't work for me that well. I used to feel guilty. I used to say, like, why does Judaism have to, at the height of your joy, remind you that once, 2,000 some odd years ago, there was a temple that was destroyed? We have a whole day devoted to that. It's called Tisha B'Av. It's like, you know, we don't remind you at the end of a wedding ceremony that there's a day, it's New Year's Day, when you're going to have to, you know, even though there are many who see the wedding day as a mini Yom Kippur, people fast, they're forgiven. But here we come to the last and final power, which is the power of forgiveness. And it discloses to us that anything that is loving is messy. We leave the marriage womb, the marriage gestation chamber, with the remembrance that if you are really going to engage in those previous six stages in a real way, you're going to break a lot of stuff. You're going to break things. You're going to break taboos. You're going to break through old assumptions. You're going to break through all of your pre-existing conditions that you bring into the marriage, your family system, the roles that you played, the things that make you uncomfortable asking someone to love you. Hey, I'm feeling really down. Can you give me a hug? Maybe you didn't grow up like that in a family. Maybe sarcasm or cynicism was one way of dealing in one family, and then you have a whole other system, and you come together and you say, we got to figure this thing out. And when we come together, when two systems come together, and they graft onto each other, there are things that will stay and things that will fall away. And in fact, I would say it more strongly in the name of my teacher and friend, Erica Brown, a great scholar in Washington, D.C., written many, many books. Um, you should read all of them. She's an incredibly powerful writer. And she once stood in front of a group of rabbis at the centennial celebration of the USCJ, the United Synagogues, right, the conservative movement synagogues. And she said, when we go out into the world, we often say to people, let's do tikkun olam, let's fix what's broken, let's fix what's broken, let's fix what's broken. She said, we have to learn to break what's fixed. We have to learn to break what's fixed. So here in this wedding ceremony this morning where Moses will come in, he's the chaloto, he's the kala that we began with. Remember the kala, the bride? And this relationship between God and Israel is a marriage. Moses will break the tablets. 
Unless you think that that is a sad, traumatic moment, there is that story. But then there is the rabbinic story that say that when we come to the end of the Torah, the very last verses of the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses is leaving the scene, and we want to give him a peroration. We want to say, oh, Moses was incredible. Who was Moses? The Cholayada Chazaka. So this great arm, right? The end of the Torah. Moses, who was Moses? The one with the outstretched arms. Say the rabbis on the last verse of the Torah. You know how we should remember Moses? As the one who broke the tablets. Yashikoach Sheshibarta. The rabbis imagine giving Moses a yashikoach. They imagine shaking his hand and saying, thank you for breaking what was fixed. It's not just that Moses rips up the marriage contract, which is one valence in the rabbis. There's a ketubah, and the Ten Commandments are the ketubah, the marriage document. He rips it up, says, hey, how could you go do that? It's over. Moses is breaking the glass. And he's saying, I recognize <clears throat> that in any good relationship, there's going to be breaking that happens. Sometimes it has to happen. But I lift up the power of breaking to get us to the next stage. So this morning's first aliyah is an aliyah that highlights, valorizes, redeems, elevates, centralizes the messiness of real relationships. Not the poochie moochie. Not that it's all happily ever after and they got into a car and it's like honeymoon. There's no honeymoon in Jude. Like, what's a honeymoon? It's the seven blessings. We it's like work. Every week, after, every day, is you have to have another meal. Here's the power of the broken glass. Not just because um, it happens sometimes, but that sometimes disruptive innovation in marriage and in business requires the courage to break things that will feel weird and awkward and messy. But this Torah reading is going to tell us that when things break, forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness will get us to the next level. Things reconstitute themselves at a level higher than they were originally. The second set of tablets don't break as easily, like the bone that gets fixed and then doesn't break as quickly. Relationships need mess in order to be real and to be in them like we mean it. Please come forward if that speaks to you this morning for the first Aliyah, to stand with Torah and with the bride for the first Aliyah. All of those this morning who recognize, who value, who need support and strength and blessing to make messy what's not yet messy, to lift it up, to own it, to sacralize it, to do all of those things for the first Aliyah. ואתם הדבקים בדוני אלוהיכם, חיים את כולכם היום.